Well, like I said, it's good that you're back. I'm glad you're here. I, I hope that you're actually keen for semester two. Uh, I'm pretty keen about preaching Revelation. Never preached through it before. I just thought it would be a challenge, but I also thought it would be really helpful for us. The semester two, uh, it's kind of like, this is where it's at, don't you reckon, semester two? Like, we've had semester one, we've kind of got to know each other, and now we're like, yeah, let's go on mission for Jesus. Let's, um, let's win this campus for Christ. I mean, essentially that's what we're here for, right? Uh, we, a lot of us, most of us, I hope, are going to really good churches. We're being filled up, uh, learning there, growing there. Um, so why come to see you? Why do this extra thing? I think part of it is it actually helps us be Christian at uni, just have a Christian peer group. I think we do grow, we train as we're on campus, and, and being in this age group, there's, there's always new challenges and there's different things that are going on. Uh, as you hear lectures and they kind of rub up against some of the Christian things that maybe you knew about. But I think one of the most important things that we do on campus is we actually exist to go on mission, to tell our friends about Jesus. Uh, and we've got something really important coming up this semester. Week four is what we call Mission Week. Uh, in our yearly calendar, we've got one of them. If you've seen it, it's on the website if you want to go find it. It's got a whole week blocked out, and it's called Mission Week. Uh, it exists to remind us, to tell us that we exist to tell people about Jesus, our non-Christian friends, because they need to know him. They need to find out about him. Ultimately, they need to give their life to him and receive eternal life from him. Uh, more of the details about what we'll be doing in our mission week will be coming over the next few weeks. We'll be thinking about um, some training that we'll be doing as we have conversations with people. Uh, but one of the things that uh, myself and the servant team have decided is we're actually going to rename Mission Week. Big thing, right? Renaming something. We're actually calling it this. Rethink. Rethink Week. Uh, our motto is it's time to rethink everything. Uh, we want people, we want our friends, our non-Christian friends, to rethink some of the really big things in life. Uh, we want them to rethink Jesus, what they think about him. We want them to, to rethink life, to rethink death, to, to rethink suffering and pain in the world, to, to rethink judgment, to rethink heaven and hell and afterlife and all those sorts of things. Are we going to have a whole week? It's coming up week four, it's not that far away. We want to help people rethink these, these eternity-affecting topics uh, in their life. Uh, that's what we're going to be doing. Because they really are, what we think about these things, really are eternity-affecting. If you don't have Jesus in your picture of things like what you think about death, what you think about the afterlife, then you really need to rethink that. Uh, Jesus has to be right at the centre because of who he is and because of what he's done. But I think for us, before we go on mission, we actually need something. We actually need to be clear about some of these things. I mean, if we're going to be telling other people, then we need to be clear in ourselves about things that, about Jesus, about what how Jesus actually affects what we think about life and death and judgment and pain and suffering and all those other sorts of things in life. Uh, we need to have our thinking right on Jesus, on who he is, on what he's done, on his death and his resurrection in the past, on his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I don't know when the last time was that you actually thought about 
his ascension. Most of us, I think, as Christians, we kind of go, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose for my hope. And then we're kind of like, well, what's he doing now? You know? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. From there, he's reigning and ruling over all things in the world. We need to be clear about these things, don't we? On what Jesus has done. Because when we understand these things, then they actually radically reshape what we think about death, what we think about life, what we think about heaven and hell. So I think for us, what we need is a very clear picture of Jesus. And that's why we've actually dived into Revelation chapters 1 to 5, because that's what they give us. Now, these first five chapters are a vision that the Apostle John was given, and they actually help us see the reality of Jesus right now. They help us understand what Jesus is doing right now. Are we, we're just going to look at the first five chapters of Revelation. We could go all the way through the whole book. It's not that we're scared of it because it kind of gets a bit crazy in some parts. Now, as complex as Revelation is, it's actually a reasonably simple book to understand uh, once you kind of get the big picture in mind. Once you understand that it's all actually about Jesus and what he's done, what he will do, and what he's doing right now, it actually makes a lot of sense. If you're someone here tonight and you're kind of going, oh man, ripped off, we're only going to do the first five chapters, then I'll tell you about this little sheet that I've done for you. It's five sheets of paper. It's called Introducing Revelation. There's copies over there on the table. If you want to think more about the whole book of Revelation, how it fits together, show you a cool picture just because it's fun. I didn't make this, but it's good. A friend of mine did this. There's a structure of the whole book of Revelation right there. It's got colours. Isn't that lovely? You can take one of them. Take that home. Um, if you're someone that's maybe been a bit confused about the book of Revelation, maybe you've never thought about it because you thought it was a bit too scary, you didn't want to dive in there for your daily Bible readings, um, I hope that sheet will be helpful for you, and I'm happy for questions from that to come up as we go along as well. But tonight, what are we doing? We're just going to look at chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1. Because in this first chapter, what we get is we actually get clarity about Jesus. And when we get clarity about Jesus, when we see him clearly, it does a couple of things. Uh, firstly, it dissolves our confusion about all the things that we see in our world that just kind of don't make sense. Uh, the second thing it does, as it dissolves that confusion, is when we see Jesus clearly, it actually gives us a great confidence to be Christian and to live out our mission that Jesus gives us. So it's a question that I want to ask you tonight is, how confident are you as a Christian at the moment? How confident are you in your faith that, that Jesus is in control? Do you really believe that? How confident are you that, that he is building his church and nothing and no one will stop him from doing that? I mean, you look around the world at the moment, and you see images like this. I don't know if you've seen these on your Facebook page coming up in the news. You look around and you see images like this in Mosul, in the Gaza Strip, where radical militant groups are marking the houses of Christians with this sign and then they're driving them out by force, ridding their town, their city of Christians. And if they don't want to leave, they're being put to death. That's happening right now 
We need to pray for them. Or maybe you see pictures like this, September last year, where churches in Pakistan were bombed. Christians are killed for meeting together. People around the world, God's people, Jesus' people, don't have the freedoms that we have to meet, just like this today. But maybe you just look at the church in the West, maybe just look around this room and you think, well, we're not actually, are we doing that well? No, we're pretty small. There's not that many of us, you know, in the West as Christians. Maybe all these things kind of together, they, they confuse you. What really is Jesus doing? Maybe it deflates your confidence about, is he really in control? I mean, he just doesn't seem to be conquering like we might expect that he would. You might have come to uni today and joined us for our little Bruce Week market day and, and being like me, you know, you walked up with a survey, we did some surveys today about our rethink topics. You might have walked up to someone and said, you know, fill out this survey, do you want to talk about this? And you start getting into a good conversation. By the end of it, they just kind of look at you going, you're crazy. Those things that you believe, I mean, you're on another planet, man. Sometimes that's how I feel when I talk to people. And it can do two things. One thing is it can really deflate you, can't it? One, because you kind of feel a bit rejected. But more importantly, because you know that they, they're not getting it. They're not getting Jesus. And these things I think that we see, you know, kind of persecution in the world, the church doesn't seem to be all that impressive. I wonder if maybe that confuses you. I wonder if maybe that makes you ask the question, what is Jesus doing right now? What's going on? Well, friends, particularly in the coming weeks, are we going to be exploring that very topic? What Jesus is doing right now? In this period of time. Uh, tonight we're going to get a glimpse. Are we going to get a vision of who he is? And that will help answer some of that question. Because tonight we do get a glimpse behind the scenes to see what's really going on with Jesus. See, in Revelation chapter 1, it's, it's, it's like a door is opened. That's how it's described. And we kind of get to peek through that crack in the door with the Apostle John and see with him this breathtaking vision of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. In verses 12 to 16, you might want to just have a skim through it there, we get this vision of Jesus that it's kind of blows our minds, doesn't it? It's confronting just how awesome Jesus really is. He's, he's dressed in this royal robe. His, his eyes look like they're on fire. His feet a solid like bronze, and there's a sword coming out of his mouth. And he holds the churches, the lampstands, in his hands. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? It's a commanding picture of Jesus. That's the second picture of Jesus we get in this passage. So before we get that picture, we actually get a first picture, a picture of Jesus that I think maybe perhaps we're a bit more familiar with. Uh, we get a picture that brings us great comfort. Uh, comfort from Jesus as we see what he's actually done for us in history, in the past. See you guys. That's what we see tonight in Revelation chapter 1. We get these two pictures of Jesus. 
And together, what they do, as we unpack them tonight, they give us both hope and they give us comfort. And as we get hope and comfort from seeing who Jesus really is, they lead us from confusion to confidence so that we can serve him, so that we can be confident in our service of him in this crazy world. But you know, you probably know um, our time period at the moment, looking at the world, seeing this kind of confusing, messed up, out of control world, this is nothing new. Uh, the original readers of the book of Revelation back in the first century, they were undergoing similar types of persecution just for being Christian. And they too, back then, they needed something like what we need right now. They needed comfort in the midst of their suffering. Uh, they needed something that would give them confidence so that they'd endure and so they'd stick with Jesus and keep telling people about him. And it seems to me that, that that's actually largely why the book of Revelation was written. It was written to give Christians both comfort and confidence as they see clearly who Jesus is, what he's doing, and what he's going to do in the future. So let's get into the text. Uh, these first three verses, uh, they're a quick little intro to get us oriented to the book. Uh, in verses 1 to 3 we read this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. These initial verses, uh, they teach us that the book of Revelation, it's going to be all about Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. In verse 1 we read, it's the revelation of Jesus. It's going to reveal him to us. That's what this book does. In verse 2, John says there that, that he wrote down all that he saw when God gave him this vision. And he summarizes all that he saw in that little phrase in verse 2. He says, as the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That is, the book of Revelation, it is the true word of God that testifies about his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation is about. That's what the whole book is about. It's not about the dragon, it's not about the beast, it's not about understanding all the numbers, even though it's very important for us to do. No, fundamentally, this book is about Jesus. It's written to reveal him to us what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. And in verse 3, what does it say there? It says, if you read it, and if you hear it, and if you keep it, you'll be blessed. It's not meant to be a book of confusion. It's not meant to be just a weird, crazy, wacky book like some people make it out to be. It's meant to be a book that when we read it, we take it to heart, we keep it, we'll be blessed. We'll be blessed because we'll see who Jesus really is. That picture will comfort us and it will give us confidence. And what we see in verses 4 to 8 as we continue reading along is that John greets the churches with a reminder of the blessings that they already have when they have Jesus. See, what John says in these verses actually should bring great comfort to us. Have a look at it there, verses 4 to 5. 
He says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. It's a pretty good greeting, isn't it? Grace and peace from the Father, the Spirit and the Son. Grace and peace from the whole Trinity. Grace and peace, you know, they're the two words that actually kind of sum up the whole Christian message. They sum up the gospel, don't they? Grace. What's grace? It's an undeserved gift. It's a gift that we get given that that we don't deserve. Grace. And what that grace does is it actually brings us peace. brings us peace with God. We're no longer God's enemies because of our sin, but we... God's friends, actually we God's dearly loved children. How does that come to happen? Well, because of the grace. Because God has given us his son, Jesus, who died on that cross to bring us peace. And Jesus is described here in these next few verses. This is what John goes on to talk about. In verse 5, he shows us exactly what Jesus did when he came, when God gave us his son. See there in verse 5, John calls him a faithful witness. That is, Jesus, when he came and he lived on this earth, he was a faithful and obedient witness to God. He lived a life without sin. Next, John calls him the firstborn from the dead. What John's doing here is he's just summarizing Jesus' whole story in really quick little phrases. He calls him the firstborn from the dead. He does that to remind us of how Jesus died on that cross All those years ago, and after three days, he rose from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who has been resurrected to life. And further, do you notice, Jesus says, John says here, he is now the ruler of the kings of the earth. See, after Jesus rose from the dead, after 40 days of teaching his disciples and other people, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus, you see, is now sitting in the most powerful seat in the universe. He's sitting at God's right hand. He is now the Lord. He is the one who is in the most powerful position. He is above our Prime Minister. He's got more power than Tony Abbott. That might not be very impressive, but he's got more power than all the presidents of the world. He's got more power than all the kings of the world. He's got more power than all the despots and dictators in the world. Jesus rules over all of them. He is the King of Kings, and he is the Lord of Lords because he sits at God's right hand. And just out of interest, do you notice that these descriptions that John has given us, these descriptions that summarise what Jesus has done, they are all actually things that are thoroughly anchored in history. They are things that are thoroughly anchored in eyewitness testimony. If we had have lived 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, in that part of the world, we would have seen these things with our very eyes. And that's a comforting thing to know, isn't it? That this is no fairy tale that we believe in. This is as real as real can be. Jesus lived and died and rose and ascended and people saw it with their own eyes and wrote it down for us. This is the good news that has been passed down through the generations. Anyone that you talk to at uni or your lecturers or your friends in the street or wherever you're talking to people, 
If they try to tell you that Christianity isn't historically up to scratch, then they're kidding themselves. They haven't done the research. They've just believed a lie that other people like to believe. See, unlike many other religions, Christianity is firmly fixed in the real-life events of a man called Jesus Christ, a man who walked on this very earth, and I think that that is wonderfully comforting to know. You can be sure of what you believe. In the end of verse 5, John goes on, uh, and what he does in these next couple of verses is, is he takes these historical events, these truths about Jesus, and he applies them to what they mean for us. He applies them to our lives. He says there, end of verse 5, he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and a priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This, you see, this picture of Jesus, what he did when he was on earth, it is a picture that is meant to give us great comfort. See, firstly there, what does it say? It says, to him who loves us. Jesus loves you. It's nice to be loved, isn't it? I don't know what it is that kind of makes you feel loved. One of the things that I'll probably do tonight is go home and I'll be a bit tired and I'll sit on the lounge and my wife will watch TV together and she'll probably put her arm around me. It makes me feel loved. It's nice when someone puts their arm around you. For you, that might be your mum or your dad or boyfriend or girlfriend. It's nice to feel love. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Do you know that? Do you really believe it? I wonder what you think, I wonder what you, how you try to justify that in your mind. What, what do you look at as proof that Jesus loves you? I think this is probably one of the biggest life lessons that, that I've been learning over the past couple of years is to know that that the way I know that Jesus loves me, that God loves me, it's actually not because of circumstances in my life, but it's because of the cross. It's because that's where Jesus kind of puts his arms around me and you, and he stretches them out and he says, come under me. See, I think for most of us, a lot of the time, we, we kind of think, oh, we kind of look at the circumstances of our life and we think, oh, I just don't have that much cash Oh, my grades really sucked last semester. Well, my car broke down and my kids are sick again and we can kind of come to this conclusion that maybe God doesn't really love us. Maybe he doesn't really care about us. But you know, that's completely false. That's, that's prosperity gospel, isn't it? To think that, that the way you know God loves you is if he gives you good stuff. What the Bible says is that the way we know God loves us is by the cross. It's because he died for us. It's by seeing, it's actually right here in this verse, that on that cross Jesus freed us from our sins by spilling his blood for us. That's love. That's what real love is. It's how you know that God loves you. It's the demonstration, Romans 5.8, that God loves us is the cross. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think when you get that, when you get that Jesus isn't just a figure in the Old Testament 
Oh, he's not in the Old Testament. He's kind of prophesied about, I guess. But he's not just a figure back in the New Testament, the first century. But he's someone who actually has done things that show that he loves us and he's done something about our sin so we can have life. When we get those things, that actually radically reshapes the way we do life, doesn't it? It actually reshapes the way we kind of cope in life. Because even if I fail at uni, even if my car does break down, I don't get it fixed for a couple of weeks. Even if my kids are really sick or I'm really sick, I still know in the midst of all of that that God really loves me because Jesus died for me. Even for our friends around the world, our Christian brothers and sisters who are being forced out of their homes, Jesus still loves them. Even though that persecution is happening. As hard as that is for us to get our mind around it. We'll chat up, we'll talk about this over the next few weeks. See, despite the circumstances in our life, as hard as it may seem for us, the one thing that never changes is the cross. The one thing that never changes is that God loves us there. And that that's where He gives us new life that not only starts now, but lasts for eternity. So I think sometimes we need to have the the long-range view in mind. Our lives are very short. And to be with God for eternity in perfect peace is the greatest thing that we could ever have. In verse 6, John goes on and he shows us He wants us to focus not just on what's happening way down there in eternity and enjoying heaven, but he shows us what we've been made to be right now. Have a look there in verse 6. He says, He's made us a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. See, Jesus, by dying on that cross, he's actually made us into a new people, a new kingdom, a kingdom with, with Jesus as our king, as our ruler. And he's made us into priests, people who would point people towards Jesus. So what we live now as Christians, we live to serve God with our lives. We exist to serve this king who laid down his life for us. And to round off this picture of Jesus, John finishes with a warning in verse 7. So that warning there, he says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. It was kind of a comforting picture, wasn't it? Jesus loves us. He's freed us from our sins. What we see here is that that all changes if we haven't accepted Jesus' love for us. If we're not Christian then the comfort turns to mourning. Jesus, who lived and died and rose again for us, Jesus, who shows us his love by dying for the sins of the world, he will come again as judge. And all the peoples of the earth who haven't accepted Jesus and been freed from their sins, all those who don't live with Jesus as their king, They will mourn when he returns. And there won't be a second chance.
Perhaps you're one of those people here tonight. Perhaps you've never really taken Jesus seriously and what he's done for you. Perhaps you've never accepted him as your king and saviour. Perhaps maybe you've written him off as kind of Jesus, meek and mild, did some good things back in the first century, but, you know, you've never really taken him seriously. Perhaps that's your picture of Jesus. And so you've never really fallen down at his feet and called him Lord. If that's you, can I say that you need to heed this warning of verse 7. Jesus will return. Jesus will come as judge, and if you're not on his side on that day, then that will be a terrible day of mourning. See, there's a second picture of Jesus in this passage, in this opening chapter. And it shows us the commanding Jesus. It shows us the Jesus who actually demands our allegiance. It shows us the Jesus who, sh- who we all need to fall down before. It's the only right response. See, in verse 10, John explains that he gets this vision. He says there, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. So on one particular Sunday, he was either praying and he had some sort of special experience. God revealed something to him. Verse 10 again, it says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And this is when it all kind of gets started in the book of Revelation. Uh, John up to this point has just been recapping what we already know about Jesus, that he died and rose and will come again. But now he shows us what Jesus is doing right now, what Jesus looks like right now. This trumpet blares, this voice shouts. And have a look at what he sees. This vision might seem a little bit crazy. Uh, Some people think John's been on drugs or something like that. That's not true. No, he writes with these pictures and images to deliberately stir our emotions and bring these ideas to life. And what's meant to happen as we see this vision in a moment is we're meant to be struck by the whole picture, by the whole image. We're not meant to get stuck on all the details, though they are important. Lots of these images, they find their background in the Old Testament, in places like Ezekiel and Daniel in particular. But what I want you to do now as I read these verses out is just try to imagine what Jesus might look like. This is what John saw. This is what he describes. He says, I turned and I saw the, turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and the voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. How'd you go? Can you picture it? Try to draw it. John, what does he see? He sees these seven lampstands. Later they're described in verse 20 as the seven churches. 
And there's a man kind of walking in their midst. He's described as the son of man. It's a picture from Daniel 7 in the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, there's this man, he's called the son of man, who approaches God, the Ancient of Days. And God gives him dominion and authority over all people for all time because of what he's done when he was on the earth. And this man, you see, this one who has ascended to the Father, he's been given all authority on heaven and on earth. He's wearing a robe and a golden sash. He's dressed like a king. His head and his hair are white as snow, which is a way of describing God, pure and holy. His eyes, they're burning with fire. Why? Well, because he's the judge who sees all things. His feet a bronze, they're glowing in a furnace. Why? Well, because he's a strong conqueror. And his voice sounds like the rushing waters because his word has immeasurable power. Out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword because the word of God, the word of Jesus, is penetrating. It cuts us to the soul between the joints and marrow, it says in the New Testament. And it judges us. Jesus' powerful word is like a two-edged sword and his face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. We can't look at him in his perfection. And you can understand John's response, can't you? In verse 17, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. See, John came face to face with the risen Jesus, the almighty Jesus. And who wouldn't fall at the floor? This is a picture of Jesus that demands and commands a response, doesn't it? This is no kind of blonde-haired, blue-eyed, meek and mild, gentle Jesus. This is kind of like Jesus crazy and wild, isn't it? It's not often the picture that we have of Jesus. Such power and might reigning with kingly authority by his powerful word. There's another description that comes up later in Revelation 19 where it adds that he's got like a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can kind of imagine this Jesus. And friends, this is reality revealed. This is what Jesus is like. He doesn't actually have a sword coming out of his mouth. These are just images that are trying to describe what he's like, how powerful he is, how powerful his word is. But I want to ask you, is that the picture that you have of Jesus when you think of him? When you think of Jesus, do you kind of have that picture in mind that he is that powerful, that he is reigning and ruling with that kind of authority? If you don't, then maybe you need to click refresh and get a new picture. See if your picture matches reality. Because this is a powerfully impressive picture, isn't it? John responds rightly. He falls down at his feet, and he worships him. Some blokes I know, kind of blokey blokes, they love this picture of Jesus. It's kind of like the ultimate blokes camp image of Jesus. Tough guy Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. You know, this isn't Jesus meek and mild. This is 
Big Jesus. Strong Jesus. But we've seen two pictures tonight, haven't we? And they come together in verse 17. This is the picture of Jesus that I think we need to take away tonight. In verse 17, where this Jesus, the one who has all might and all authority, he reaches down to this quivering John. In verse 17, he places his right hand on him and he says, Fear not. Do not be afraid. See, John's response is the right one. We should be a blubbering mess before the risen and ascended Jesus. But that's not the response he wants from his people. No, he puts his hand on John and he says, Do not be afraid. What grace is there? What mercy and love? What a saviour we have in Jesus. And this comfort comes from this commanding figure in verse 18. Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Friends, what we see tonight is that Jesus has won the victory. He's conquered death. He did it on the cross. He has power over death and there is power in his word to give life. And whether you're reading this in the first century, suffering and being persecuted back there, or whether you're reading this in the 21st century, where people around you are dying and life is difficult, this reality that Jesus who loves you has the power over death, that is a great comfort, isn't it? Tonight we've been given a glimpse of this reality of Jesus. Uh, We've been reminded how Jesus' life and death and resurrection comforts us. And we've seen how he's now ascended with all power and might. And if I can boil it down for us, the reality is that Jesus is two things. He's both merciful and mighty. Jesus is commandingly mighty and yet mercifully comforting. And those two pictures, uh, we have to put them together. They actually come together really well uh, in the Narnia series. You probably know this quote, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, Peter, Susan and Lucy, they're talking with Mr and Mrs Beaver and they're wondering what the lion, Aslan, is like. And Susan says, Susan's the little girl, she says, Oh, sorry, I think Susan says it, doesn't she? What does Lucy say? Oh, Susan says it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. One of, them, one of them says it. They say, is he quite safe? He says, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver replies, says, that you will, dearie, make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See how the two pictures go together? Jesus, the powerful and fearsome one, is also the merciful one who loves us and forgives us and died for us. And when you put those two pictures together, when you see that the one that loves us is in control of all things, and that he holds the keys of even death. So even death need not worry us. 
then that gives us great confidence, doesn't it? It gives us confidence in our evangelism because we know that Jesus is building the church and nothing is going to stop him. It gives us confidence to live as Christians and not be swayed by the world and get distracted by it because we know that this world is passing away. It's not what's going to last. So why would you live for it? It gives us confidence to even be as Christians, even die as Christians, because he has the keys over death. As the Apostle Paul used to say, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I want to ask you, what are you going to do this semester? What are you going to do in semester two? Will you live for Christ, the risen Lord? We commit to hearing his powerful word, to sitting under it on nights like tonight, to going to Bible studies and meeting one-to-one, to hear Jesus' word shape you and give you confidence and comfort you. Will you join us on Mission Week? Will you get behind that? Will you be confident in the way that you speak for the Lord Jesus because you know that you're bringing about his plan, partnering with him in that? Will you pray for that? Will you commit to pray for your friends, that they would see this picture of Jesus, how wonderful our Saviour is, who gives us grace and mercy? See, when you see this reality, how could you not? How could you not serve him? We fall down at his feet, but he lifts us up and he says, serve me. Tell the world about me. Our Heavenly Father, we are in awe of this picture of Jesus. So often we we just have the wrong picture of Jesus. We leave him back there in the first century. We forget what you are doing right now as the word of the gospel goes out. Father, we pray for our uni. We pray that, that we would be bold to speak words of truth about Jesus. We pray that you would save many before that final day when you return and make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. So he gets the glory. Amen.